Good morning. This morning we're reading from the English Standard Version, Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory places, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. I've been... Uh, speaking about the Psalms, we look at the Psalms for a bit every summer. The Psalms help us. They help us process the varied and complex gamut of human emotions and, and all of our experiences. The Psalm helps us process all that we live through in life in a way that, that, that brings all of our fears and hopes, our joys and pains to God in prayer and meditation. And so the, the Psalms help us do that even in married life. Even, even married life is covered in the Psalms. Right here, Psalm 45, did you notice the heading? And the headings are original, by the way. The heading, it's entitled A Love Song. So those of you who are familiar with the romantically juicy Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it's very similar, very similar language here. In Psalm 45, because God, we discover in the Psalms, which are sung, were sung prayers, we discover that God wants marriage, your marriage, if you're married, and the whole marriage as, a, as an institution, he wants it to be the subject of our prayer lives. He wants our prayer lives to include our marriages, other people's marriages, the health of marriage as an institution. You know, today's Western society is quite confused about marriage, I think. Uh, just one example, more and more men and women 
over, the re- over recent decades have been delaying getting married uh, or, or uh, foregoing declining marriage altogether, just, just cohabitating and, and living with uh, the, the people that they love, while same-sex attracted people are marrying one another, are pursuing marriage themselves more so. And so marriage in its definition and in in the way we approach marriage and what it is and what it means as a society is becoming more and more ambiguous as as the decades roll on. Now, with no disrespect to those folks that I've just mentioned, there actually is clarity in the Bible about what marriage is. Now, if you're single today, and especially if you're very young. So I know that there are some kids here, there are some middle schoolers, some, some teenagers, maybe even college students, you know, whatever. But if you're single, and especially if you're here today and you're young, you're probably gonna get married someday. So today is for you. I'm talking to adults, but I really want the kids and the young people to listen up today as we talk about, as we meditate on Psalm 45. And if you're already married, well, we should pay close attention too. Because as we know, all of our marriages could use all the help that they can get. Now, Psalm 45, especially as later the New Testament authors would understand it and treat it, Psalm 45 helps us understand with some clarity what marriage is, what it's for, and what it's about. So, you know, Avery, said, Avery set this message up really well earlier. She talked about Disney princess movies. Let's talk about some famous songs, okay? When a man loves a woman, can't keep his mind on nothing else. Great classic love song, right? 1966. I'm sure that millions of people have danced to that song. It's a beautiful song. I remember the Wonder Years, if you're my age, it was the, when, 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 when Kevin falls in love with Winnie Cooper. That's the song that comes on. I think it is. And um, however, that song did not prepare uh, my parents' generation, the baby boomers, did not prepare them for all the divorces that resulted out of their marriages. Let's fast forward to my generation. Think, I'd like to think of a Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young. Come out, Virginia, don't let me wait. You Catholic girls start much too late. Oh, but sooner or later it comes down to fate. I might as well be the one. Catchy song. Catchy song. Great song. That song, however, did not teach my generation how to understand the complexities and the nuances and the needs of the opposite sex. Let's fast forward to your generation, young people. Let's talk about Disney princess movies. Love is an open door. It's a great song, and it's fun to sing. But young people, what you will discover if you experience marriage someday is that love closes as many doors as it opens. But Psalm 45 is a song. And I would sing it, but we don't have the music for it. Psalm 45 is a song with wisdom. It doesn't just make you feel good so that you can dance to it. Psalm 45 sings wisdom to prepare you well 
for the person that you're going to marry, to prepare us well, to further help us who are already married cultivate the relationships that we have. Wisdom for marriage. And I hope you're going to see today that Psalm 45 shows us marriage is God's beautiful portrait. It's like a picture. It's like a painting. It's an illustration in a sense. Marriage itself is God's beautiful portrait of how he loves us, how he pursues us and longs to be with us. And so to break this into three ideas, I'm going to talk about the beauty of marriage as an institution, as God designed it originally. And I'm going to talk about the beauty of your marriage, whether you have one now or want to be married someday. The beauty of your marriage. And then finally, yeah, this is true, the beauty of God's marriage. God is married, the Bible tells us. So the beauty of marriage as an institution, the beauty of yours, and the beauty of God's. Now, the beauty of marriage is illustrated here in Psalm 45. It's a wedding song. You've seen the wedding singer with Adam Sandler. Well, well, this psalmist is basically a wedding singer, but a good one. One with a good message. He's not depressed and discouraged. Psalm 45 is a wedding song illustrating the beauty of marriage. Uh, My family and I just participated a couple of weeks ago in my sister-in-law's wedding. And, and it was a great, it was one of the, I think it was probably one of the best weddings that, that I've been able to enjoy in a long time. Uh, my, my, the bride, my sister-in-law looked stunning. Uh, the groom, my new brother-in-law, he, he looked so sharp with all of his groomsmen. And, and the, all, all the bridesmaids just looked lovely. And my wife was the maid of honor, so naturally she looked amazing. And uh, our youngest girl was the flower girl, so of course she did, like, I'm going to brag as a dad. She did a great job because, like, a four-year-old throwing flowers all over the floor, I mean, that's a four-year-old girl's job. Just throw flower, flower petals everywhere. It was a great wedding, the, 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 the ceremony, the reception, just a wonderful celebration. Um, we don't treat the beginning of any other type of relationship like we treat a wedding. Not even the birth of a child. We don't treat any other interaction, you know, the merging of corporations or uh, peace treaties. Uh, we don't treat any beginning relation, uh, the beginning of any relationship like we treat Marriage, it's a celebration. And yet, a royal wedding, right, like our friends across the ocean in Britain like to demonstrate, a royal wedding spares no expense. And this this was a royal wedding that the psalmist is singing about. The king was getting married. The the anointed one, the Messiah, a descendant of David most likely, was getting married, the king and the queen, the the prince and the princess here. It's a royal wedding. This is the Hebrew king that the the, the psalm isn't singing to God, actually. It's singing to the bride and the groom, like we just sang a blessing to new members. So this psalmist, he's singing to the king, and he says to the king, verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. And then he says in verse 8, just as another example to the king, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. 
And then he, he sings to the queen and he says to her in verses 12 and 13, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. I've never attended a royal wedding. Um, I don't, maybe none of you have. Um, I don't think so. Anyway, even, even our commonplace weddings, right? We're all common people. We're all normal people. But even our weddings are a big deal. Even our weddings, we pull out all the stops. We spare no expense. Have you ever wondered, what is all the fuss with weddings? What is all the fuss? Well, Two reasons come to mind that I want to share today. The first is that marriage is older than sin. According to Genesis chapter 2, the institution of marriage predates humanity's fall into decay and rebellion. And weddings echo back to a time of humanity's perfection. Second thing I want to mention is that, and here, why we create such a fuss about weddings, is because marriage creates, literally marriage creates a new family. Marriage generates new life. And so as an institution, marriage stabilizes and advances civilization. It's something to rejoice about. It's something to sing about. That's why the poet wrote Psalm 45. But central to the beauty of this wedding, as we read about it, is acknowledgement of a God who blesses it. It's about a man and a woman, but God is right at the center. Did you notice that? Look again at verses 2 and verse 7. Grace is poured, speaking to the king now, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And then verse seven, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all of your companions. You see, this marriage is not blessed because the couple is rich and good-looking, although they clearly are. It's a royal wedding. But that's not why this marriage is blessed. It's blessed because this couple is virtuous. This king, this queen, they're virtuous because God is at the center. And as this wedding song paints a picture of the beauty of God-designed marriage, God's at the center of it. God's encouraging it. But in a fallen and broken world, and this also gets back to what Avery said, right? The, and they lived happily ever after endings are not true. We know this, that in a fallen, broken world, a beautiful marriage is not a perfect one. I should have heard about 100 amens right there. <laughs> Mine being the first. Amen. Um, so the beauty of your marriage, and if you're not married yet, the beauty of your future marriage will require some realism. We have to be realistic, folks. And here's what I mean. You're a sinner, and you're going to marry one. Ignoring that is foolish. Ignoring that is being romantic in the worst sense of the term. 
So Avery talked about, and we didn't coordinate this, by the way. This was God's spirit. Avery talked about Disney princess movies. Let me talk about adult romantic movies, rom-coms. I, I, not all of them, but there are some rom-coms that I really love and watch again and again, now even with some of my older kids. I love You've Got Mail. I love that, based on Pride and Prejudice, by the way. I love that too. Or Hitch. I love Hitch. And why, why do we keep watching rom-coms? Like, you've seen them 20 times. Why do you keep watching them? Because all throughout the plot, uncertainty uncertainty, uncertainty, and then it's finally resolved. It's finally satisfied when Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox finally admit that they really do, although they outwardly hate each other, love one another, and they finally get together in the end. Or when Hitch and Al, you know, Alex Hitchens and Sarah, they, they really kind of detest each other, and they're trying to stay away from each other, but as time goes by. You see it. You see they're meant for each other. They don't see it, but finally they see it, and it ends, and you go, oh, I want to see it go on. the, The feeling, I want it to continue. Well, there is no part two, so I guess I'll just have to watch it again, and one of my kids said, why isn't there a sequel? There should be a sequel. Why do they stop when they kiss and, and the music comes on and, and, then, and then the credits? Why don't we get to see more? I'll tell you why we don't get to see more. Because if they made a part two, what would you see? You'd see bickering. You may even see tragedy. You'd see them, maybe you'd see them have a child and maybe that child would die or one of them gets terminally ill and dies, or even worse, they get divorced. But even if nothing like that dramatic happens, you know what the sequel to a rom-com would be? It would be boring, un-Hollywood-like, day by day, each partner making sacrifices for the good of the other. Day by day, dying to their own desires, for the sake of the other, and nobody wants to make a movie about that. That's why you don't see part twos to rom-coms. Because often, as I've already sung, and I'll spare it this time, love is a closed door. When something or someone threatens it. Love is a closed door to living just as you please to live. So, you need to be realistic. And young people, you need the realistic expectation for a marriage that it is both beautiful and painful at the same time, almost always. So if you are dating, or if you are looking for a relationship that can lead to marriage, that can lead to a lifelong partner, you want to look for somebody, and, when you want to, and you want to look for a relationship that helps you both put God at the center. You want a person that helps you put God at the center of this, new, of this relationship that you're pursuing. Just as we see in Psalm 45, we've already looked at it, um, how, how it says to the king that grace is poured on your lips. What, is, what does that mean? That he's sweet lips? No, it means that he's wise with his words. It means he knows how to communicate to people. It means he is wise and just in his responses. 
That's what this relationship does for him. It also says that the king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Is the relationship that you're pursuing with this person that you're pursuing allowing the both of you to love righteousness and hate wickedness? Is God at the center? Does the other person help you put God at the center? That's what we need to pursue. That's what you need to pursue. In today's society, in our world, we, we live in the West and in America in a very individualistic, a very me-based, consumeristic society. So, so when you watch rom-coms and, and, when, and when you look at social media and when you think of how you were raised, we often as young people, I'm not a young person anymore, we, uh, in quotes, as young people approach dating and approach that special someone we're looking for and approach marriage from a very individualistic perspective that marriage is supposed to fulfill us personally, personally. That marriage, like the rom-cons, is supposed to make me happy and make me the truest version of myself as though I couldn't be myself without a spouse. However, in the Bible, marriage is not about personal fulfillment, Marriage is about something far more deep that will produce health and joy despite the pain and the difficulty of it. In the Bible, marriage is about mutual rehabilitation, not personal fulfillment. In a God-centered marriage, your spouse, I like to say this about Becky, and she's not in here right now. She's watching the kids. Um, your spouse in a God-centered marriage is your PSA. Now, for those of you who have struggled with prostate cancer, don't get offended. Your PSA, in my terminology, is your primary sanctifying agent. Your spouse, for a God-centered marriage, is your PSA. Because God works in that person, in your marriage, to help you become more like Jesus. Each for the other, Brian Chappell's book about marriage is entitled... Because God, more than any other relationship, look, every relationship and every experience in your life, God uses to sanctify you, to make you like the person he wants you to be. But marriage, like no other relationship, does that more intensely and consistently, constantly, <laughs> naggingly. So the God-centered marriage, each is the other's PSA, primary sanctifying agent. So that is what you look for in a relationship. That's what you look for in cultivating a God-centered marriage. So here's the takeaway. And if you're already married, start applying this this week. I'm going to too. And if you're not married yet, think about this for your future. Seek a God-centered marriage or cultivate a God-centered marriage. And if you're single or if you don't see yourself ever getting married, fine. Encourage and pray for other God-centered marriages. There are people in your life who are getting married or already are. Pray for them. That is a tremendous blessing to them. Okay, if you don't do this, if we are not cultivating God-centered marriages, if we're not doing this mutual rehabilitation, but instead this personal fulfillment thing, then we will, 
we will, as our society is doing more and more, we will misappropriate marriage. And you will misappropriate your spouse. Marriage is God's creation by God's design. And we have no business misusing it. When we misconceive the meaning and purpose of marriage with wrong expectations about what it's for and what it will do for us, we enter into our marriages unprepared, like I was, for the challenges that marriage presents. When we abuse marriage with our own selfish, self-centered desires, we end up objectifying our spouses as a means to our own satisfaction. When we desecrate marriage with our own fallen designs and intentions and redefinitions of it, we mock its maker, presuming that we are wiser than he is. If we do not seek a God-centered marriage, we will misappropriate it as an institution and we will misappropriate the person we are married to. But Tim and Kathy Keller in their devotional on the Psalms called the Songs of Jesus say beautifully, we must let our marriages reveal Christ, not replace him. But a God-centered marriage our God-centered marriages, your, maybe future, God-centered marriage can be, can be a picture of how God, through Jesus Christ, his son, has married us. We won't have perfect marriages, but if they're God-centered, they become living illustrations, vibrant paintings to our family and to our neighbors and coworkers and to the world of how God longs to love us and how God has already loved us and how he wants to be in relationship and how he, as Hosea said, has betrothed himself, has wedded himself to us. There's this awkward phrase in this psalm. Did you notice it? Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And you may think at first, well, big deal. That's like in every single psalm. But this psalm is a song to a king and a queen, to a bride and a groom. It's not a song to God. So why is he saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever? He's singing to the king. I've looked at it, I've exegeted it this week. He's singing to the king. He is not singing to God. The ancient Hebrew is plain. The ancient Greek Septuagint is plain. He is singing to the king, and he calls the king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And throughout the centuries, uh, scholars, uh, Jewish scholars and Christian scholars have, um, have offered different interpretations, and some have sidestepped this awkward phrase, and some have avoided it or translated it differently in different English translations. But the original is plain, your throne, O God, is forever, and he says this to the king. The Hebrew scholar uh, Derek Kidner says of the Old Testament, and here's a prime example, often the Old Testament is demanding more than human fulfillment of a problem, of a paradigm, of a hope, 
of an example. Often the Old Testament sets up, this is what life should be like, this is what your life should be like, and then it demands too much of us. This phrase is demanding too much of the king. Even a virtuous king is not a perfect king. We know that. So the king's a sinner. The king's not perfect. He's a good king, but he's a sinner. And yet, he's called God. What's happening here? Well, Derek Kidner is saying this is an example how throughout the Old Testament, more is expected of us. More is demanded of us than we can fulfill. And that paradox remains. We should be like God, but we're not God. Our marriages should look like this, but are not like this. As wives, as husbands, we should be like this, but we are not like this. Well, there is, there is somebody who fulfills that paradox, who resolves that mystery. There is a king who is king and God at the same time. And the apostle Paul said about him, about Jesus, to his letter, his letter to the Ephesians, Paul said, this mystery, this whole marriage thing, it is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so there you have it. For all of human history, God designs an institution to point to as a living portrait the relationship that he longs to have and accomplished with us. This mystery is about Christ and the church. And what we discover in the New Testament is that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the eternal God, made human being. Jesus made all the fuss. Jesus pulled out all the stops. Jesus spared no expense for his royal wedding. And he took commoners, unlovely, unworthy, Commoners, me, you, all of us. He calls us the church. It means his gathered people. He took us all as his bride for his royal wedding. Why did he do it? Paul says further in that same chapter, Ephesians chapter five, this is why Jesus spared no expense and made all the fuss to marry us so that he might sanctify her, her is us, her is the church, so that he might sanctify us, so that he might present us to himself, think of wedding, bride coming down the aisle, so that he might present the church to himself in what? In splendor. There's the bride. In splendor, what? Without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. Why? That she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus prepared a royal wedding to marry us to him. And as a bride, our beautification process began with his sacrificial death. He died to himself so that we could live. And I'll quote the Kellers again who said, Jesus doesn't love us because we are lovely. He loves us in order to make us lovely by his grace. 
Jesus didn't marry us because we were beautiful, but to make us beautiful. And that's why you get married. Now I'm talking about you. That's why we get married. To make one another beautiful. We get married, we commit ourselves to another to make them the beautiful person that God intends them to be, more so than in any other facet of their life. Movie about 10 years ago, I know it was based on a book, The Descendants, starring George Clooney. So at the end of the movie, Matt King is is the main character, and Matt King um, uh, privately goes along to the deathbed of his dying wife, Elizabeth. She is coma-stricken. She will never wake up again. She can't hear or see or know what's going on. And he gently comes to her to say his final goodbye because she's about to die. They had to pull the plug, and, and he only has minutes. And... Um, Matt King, he kneels beside Elizabeth, and they had a rocky marriage. It was rough. It was rough. And he discovers things about her while she was in a coma that he never knew that discouraged him and broke his heart. And now he's saying goodbye to his spouse. And of all the things that he gently and lovingly says to her, one thing has stuck with me. I never forgot this. I hadn't seen it in a decade, but I watched again this week to remember this one phrase. Of all the things he says to her, he calls her my pain and my joy. And that is what human marriage is. It is pain and it is joy. And that is the realism that you need. That is the realism I need to continue to cultivate a marriage that is better tomorrow than it was today or the day before. That is what you need if you're a kid or you're a young person and you want to get married someday. That is what you need to understand right now. My pain and my joy. That is what it means to be wed to a sinner who will become more beautiful because God has called you to that person. As you become more beautiful because God has called them to you. But Jesus invites us into his marriage that will someday become all joy because of his pain. Now if you are single... And if you don't intend or think that you'll ever get married, fine. You don't need to be married to be the person God wants you to be. Don't make marriage an idol. None of us should. But if you are single, you are no less married to Jesus than anyone. And in a real way, your marriage to Jesus might be more meaningful to you than to us married people. What a gift. Steward it well. And if your marriage is troubled today, or always has been, or for the future when it might be, you are no less married to Jesus than anyone. And he is a spouse who cannot, will not fail you. Marriage is God's Beautiful and painful. Because all good art 
involves contrast. Marriage is God's beautiful portrait of how he loves us and longs for us. I mean, he longs for us. We see that Jesus is beautiful, but he thinks we're beautiful. He thinks we're beautiful, and he's making us beautiful, and he will not stop, as Paul said in Ephesians, until we are coming down the aisle and he is waiting for us. Think of that when you go to your next wedding, because that couple is imperfect, and they may even get divorced someday, but let it remind you of Jesus and how he longs to see you on his wedding day. God blesses marriage and marital love as a means of illustrating to the world and to us the beauty of Christ's love for us. So seek a God-centered marriage. Pray for a God-centered marriage. Kids, start thinking about it now. When you see somebody attractive in school, ask yourself, could I be married to that person someday? And if I take them to the movies or I take them out to get some pizza, could I see myself with them growing closer to God? If not, get away. Just be friends. And tell them that. And you can blame me. Just say, I just want to be friends. My pastor said, I just need to be friends with you. I don't care. Throw me under the bus. Seek a God-centered marriage. And if you're married, cultivate one. Cultivate a God-centered marriage. And if you're not married, encourage and pray for others that their marriages would reflect the beauty of a God who loves us and married us, not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that, you know, two, 3,000 years ago, you would inspire some songwriter, one of the sons of Korah that we don't even know who it is. You gave somebody a tune. You gave them a melody that, flew, that, that just spilled out of their heart, and they wanted to say this about the king and the queen, but wow, we are just so blown away by Jesus and, and how he married us and why he married us. We are... We are we are amazed at your picture of marriage and what it is. And, and we know, Father, our marriages are far from this. But we know that yours is perfect. Give us hope in how Jesus has married us. Forgive us for making marriage our idol. Forgive us for making our spouses our idol. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. You are perfect. You will never let us down. You are the standard of beauty for all of us. You are the standard of beauty. May we find you truly beautiful. And as we follow you, help our marriages and our relationships put him at the center so that we can serve the other spouse, so that we can serve one another as we keep our eyes focused on our beautiful Savior. In his name, amen.